Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Scott Stewart, founder and CEO of Venture for Canada and your host. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season four, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. I'm excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. Marcus Friend is the founder of online dating site Plenty of Fish, which grew to 140 million users before selling to Match.com in 2015 for approximately 800 million Canadian dollars. Marcus currently runs a family office of which some of Canada's largest tech startups like Cymax.com and Arvezi.com are subsidiaries. The family office also invests heavily in real estate and is currently building out Friend Winery. Welcome to the podcast, Marcus. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having me. So you grew up in rural British Columbia on a 1,200 acre plot uh, and initially lived in a trailer without electricity, phones, or running water. In what ways do you think your childhood influenced your entrepreneurial journey? So I came, my parents came to Canada when I was four years old. And then we moved to the middle of nowhere in northern BC and 1200 acre farm, like you said, no running water, no electricity for the for the first year. We eventually got electricity after a year or so, but no running water till like age 12. Um, one thing that kind of teaches you is the constant need just to be flexible and and to, to go with the flow. Um, you're growing up on a farm, nothing ever works out as expected. Like literally everything breaks all the time and there's no store that you can drive to, you know, 10 minutes away where you can pick up a replacement part. You pretty much have to make everything on your own, or at least in those days. So you're always trying to be as flexible as possible and you're being hit by the unknown every day, all day. I can only imagine. It, it, it's interesting. In, in many ways, I, I imagine some of the early years in, in the farm would have been like growing up in a, a different era uh, at, at times. Uh, I once uh, uh, heard a, a senior tech executive. She had been one of the uh, uh, senior executives at JDS Uniface, which was a Canadian, you know, successful company in the early 2000s. And she grew up in a, a rural village in, in a, an outport in Newfoundland. And she described that she's lived in three centuries: uh, the 19th century, the 20th century, and the 21st century. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure if that resonates, but it sounds like you had a pretty rustic uh, upbringing in, in your early years. Oh yeah, I know that sounds very familiar. I remember one day I was supposed to feed the chickens at 7 a.m. or something. So I'm half asleep grabbing the, the pail of food to, to go bring to them. I open the door and there is one centimeter from my face is a bear standing at some hind legs looking me directly in the eyes. I don't think I've ever woken up so quickly in my whole life. And then, you know, just slowly slam the door shut. Your, your mind just goes into slow-mo mode and you just slam the door shut, calmly walk back 30 paces looking at the door you know, counting every step and then just running after 30 steps. I can only imagine. I hope you do not have uh, lots of childhood nightmares and bears for, for many years to come. Uh, out of interest, what, what uh, attracted your parents to make the decision to make the big move from Germany to very rural British Columbia? You know, I, I don't have the faintest idea that they kind of went on a road trip, toured around and then on the road trip, like, hey, let's move here. Let's get some let's get some land out here. And, you know, in the northern BC, you've got a lot of people from Germany, from Europe moving there. And, and, and especially in the, you know, all the way from the 60s to the 90s. So it's a fairly common place. And, and you'll see huge amounts of Europeans up there in, in those areas. Very interesting. I did not uh, know that. So 
After graduating from the British Columbia Institute of Technology with a degree in computer programming, you worked for several startups in the early 2000s. What lessons did you learn from working for these companies? What not to do. So a, a lot of these companies, they just started, but they really had no idea what they were doing. They're just, there, there, was, there was a lack of focus and a lack of understanding of how to grow a business and how to scale. Um, so it's just a lot of, you know, just people saying, hey, I, I want to create a company tomorrow. So I'm going to get together a bunch of people. We got a bit of money and let's see what we can build, but not truly understanding what it took at that time you got it this is right 90 from 99 onwards right and it, it was just insanity at that time and then by you know the time you know the the uh, 2001 2002 2003 rolled around most of these companies had gone out of business so you had hundreds of tech companies being reduced to you know a dozen or so yeah the big uh desert dot com uh, bubble i remember there was a a movie that I uh, watched years ago, and it's called a, something like .com, but it, it, it's basically a documentary of a, a company that raised like hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and it was a real story in the US that just completely blew up. And to your point, there was no business model. Like they, people were just investing in things that weren't necessarily, uh, um, you know, cash flow positive or, or even generating any kind of revenue. Uh, which is kind of remarkable. So I guess on that topic is uh, that is not what you did uh, with plenty uh, of fish. Uh, and it, from what I've read is it was a company that generated, you know, lots of revenue from the early stages. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of what first motivated you to, to launch uh, plenty of fish and what was, what were some of the early years of the company like? Uh, so I was really focused on, I wanted to improve my resume so I could get a better job back in the day. And I figured, Hey, the easiest way to do that, is to learn a new programming language, which was ASP.NET at the time. I, and I figure I, I learn a lot more when I go build something and do something as opposed to reading books. So I was like, I could build a dating site. It's the most kind of interactive thing online at that time. It was just chat rooms basically, right? This was the time, you know, Facebook was founded right around this time. There was Friendster and a few others, but there was no real communication with other people on the internet. Uh, so I just went and quickly wrote this site in about two weeks. And then I, I figured out, oh, you can get stuff indexed on Google. Well, let's go index it, see how I can do some SEO and get it on Google. And it was running off my whole machine. Anyways, I, I wrote it and then I forgot about it for about a few weeks. And then I log in, I'm like, or I look at my computer, my home computer, and it's like, there's tons of people using this. I'm starting to max out my bandwidth. <laughs> and so I, 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 then I was like, okay, well, I didn't do image uploading on the site. It's now I got a thousand people on here. No one has any images. So I allowed image uploading and then it just kind of snowballed and it had more and more people coming on. And back in those days, Google would update their index once a month or so. So every time there was a big update, all of a sudden you get a flood of traffic and you, you, you just get more and more people coming to the site overnight. And so once I saw that, you know, I was like, oh, this is amazing. So I, so I wrote it end of Feb. Uh, by the time June or July rolled around, AdSense came out. And with AdSense, I basically made a thousand bucks the first month after making absolutely nothing because there was some monetization. You know, by the time uh, October rolled around, I was making 4,000 bucks a month off AdSense. Um, and then I was like, okay, it's time to quit my job. So I quit my job. And then it was like, well, now that I was doing it full time instead of like haphazardly, um, uh, by January, I was making 16,000 bucks a month. And then uh, the following January was 200,000 a month, just because of focus, growth and momentum. And I just kept everything very simple. Like no matter how big of a company you develop, 
there's always only five things a year that you do that move the needle in any which way. And in hindsight, they're usually pretty obvious. So the key is prioritization and always focusing on things that actually matter. And when you're the only employee and you're building this thing, you know right away there's only a handful of things that matter. So it's really just focusing on those. So it's driving users. How do I get more users? How do I get them cheaper? Or in this case, free. And how do I keep them happy? How do I make them stay longer? How do I make them tell everyone? And then obviously, how do I make more money for, from each user? And, and you know, many businesses are a trade-off between if I make more money from a user, well, they're more likely to leave and not refer people. So that balancing act. Is there any uh, framework or kind of mental model that uh, you use then or use today uh, to prioritize uh, what, is, what are the most uh, important uh, activities? Uh, how can I make more money per user and how can I get more users? That's really it. And then in there, you look at, uh, then you get into product optimization, which is basically, well, I've got all these things I can do. Here's my expected gain from them. And here's the amount of time that will take to build these things. So gain can be in terms of users or some dollar amount. But usually you, you, you calculate some dollar amount and you just rank or rate all of the things that you could be doing. And then you start from the top of the list and work your way down. Uh, but, but usually it's always the super obvious things like in, in pretty much every company I've ever looked at um, or invested in or, or been part of, it's, it's just super obvious what is gonna make the biggest difference. And in many times it's a five minute change. It's like, a, so in Plenty of Fish, the biggest change I ever made was putting a paywall on the meet me screen. It took me five minutes to write and it generated 50 million in bottom line. And, and, and you've got all these projects that take years to do, have giant programming teams. But at the end of the day, it's uh, if you have a product and there's a huge amount of users using one feature or, or thing, uh, you're going to make your money there. It doesn't matter. Like if your homepage has 100,000 users that, that hit it and you have some obscure page that has 200 users, it's like that, that obscure page is never going to make a huge amounts of money. So all of these sites or all of these apps, they may have hundreds of screens, but there's only three or four screens with traffic. So all of your monetization has to occur in those three or four screens. It doesn't matter how much stuff you shove into all these other screens. It's simply not going to add up to anything uh, relevant or a scale. Focus on the highest value added uh, activities. And, and often sometimes the simplest solution is, is the, the most effective one. One of the things that I found most interesting in uh, my research on you, Marcus, was that you built uh, Plenty of Fish to be uh, up to 10 million in, in revenue uh, without ever hiring any person. Uh, how were you able to build uh, um, the company to that size without hiring many people? And I think even at the time of acquisition, which as I mentioned, Plenty of Fish was acquired for uh, around $800 million Canadian, you still had around a, only approximately you know, 100 or so uh, employees. So how were you able to build uh, such you know, uh, a valuable company with a relatively uh, few number of, of uh, employees? Um, at, at the end of the day, all of this stuff scales when you have the right database system. So all of the web and all these other things, they don't really uh, take much resources or whatnot. So if you can scale the database, you can grow to incredible scale. Um, so in our, in our database at the peak, we're doing 500,000 SQL transactions per second, which was one of the largest installations in certainly Canada, but one of the largest in North America, especially running on the server. Um, and it was just understanding how to optimize within the database. Uh, so many startups are just completely clueless about how to optimize things properly. So you can get like a two or three or 10,000 X increase in performance 
if you write your SQL and your code properly within the database. And most companies have no idea how to do that. So they get, you know, tens of web servers, they or hundreds or thousands of web servers, they try and they create all these obscure systems, and then they go hire a hundred engineers or something to try and piece all this and stitch it together to make it somewhat functional. Um, but you can you can get such tremendous scaling if you know how to optimize correctly and, and all of these additional people, all this additional overhead and hardware is simply not needed. Uh, but again, it's, it's very few companies realize this. And the only way you really learn it is when you get at scale. The reason I learned it is because I was rewriting the code constantly to make it more and more efficient as we scaled. So we'd have Microsoft coming in and looking at our code because a lot of what stuff we'd done in the database, they considered impossible or there was not it was just weird stuff that was happening that shouldn't happen and it couldn't explain it. So we're helping drive the roadmap for Microsoft SQL Server. That is fascinating. And I think a, a testament that particularly in, you know, in the 21st century with technology companies, someone can build a phenomenally uh, successful company with very few uh, employees. And definitely other examples, WhatsApp you know, selling, I know we're Instagram selling for you know, huge valuations with quite small uh, teams. Often, uh, I think, people falsely equate a, a company's success with the amount of employees that they have. And it's actually a, a good challenge for an entrepreneur for, is how to build as, as successful of a tech company as possible with as small of a, of, of a team. Because uh, ultimately, as what you're saying, Marcus, is it's a sign of efficiency and intelligence. And uh, headcount is not necessarily always synonymous with success. It's usually the opposite. So what happens as you increase headcount, uh, Typically in every successful company, there is one or two people in every department or area that kind of know the system inside out and they have their finger on the pulse of the company, so to speak. So they can tell you the pros and cons of a decision. Um, like if we were to go this direction and we were to do this, you know, this is what could happen, this, this might happen, or, or I think this is an amazing thing that will come out of this. But what happens is when you hire a ton of people and they're all specialists at this point, like specializing in one little area, um, you suddenly, the team's output or efficiency is the efficiency and output of the weakest link on the team. Because that one person, so as you've grown, you've hired all these specialists. Well, there come a time when you're like, well, that whole department or whole group, it's irrelevant. Why do we even need it? And what happens is if you have no one who understands the entire system, there's no one who can make that call. There's no one who can say this is irrelevant or this technology shouldn't be used in the first place. Um, and, and as that team gets bigger, all of a sudden the team owns it, not individuals. And it's great when you've already figured everything out and you, you're not trying to scale against someplace large, that's okay. But when you're small and you're trying to figure out how to get extremely large, that's a very bad thing to happen because it just slows everything down and, and it just becomes a bloated mess and you have to rewrite it every year or two. You're not going to get like that 10x, that 20x improvement over your closest competitor because they're they're probably doing the same thing. What are some of the principal traits and characteristics that you look for when you're considering uh, hiring someone or bringing someone onto your team? I usually look for people who can learn and ask why. So a manager asks, you know, how do I get this done? Or when do I get this done? What do you need and when do you need to buy? A leader always asks why. Why are we doing this? What's the reason? You know, what, what is this going to give us? And so people who don't ask why, you just, you just don't hire them. Um, the other, 
one of the things I focus on a lot is I try and see how people can think outside the box. So there, there's two interview questions I really like using a lot. One is, uh, uh, if you had a spirit animal, what would it be? Because it forces them to think outside the box and then you can immediately dive into their personality. Uh, the other question that is incredibly effective is if I ask three people that you've worked with, one that really likes you, one that doesn't like you, and one who's ambivalent, what adjective would they use to describe you, each one of those people? And that really gets to the roots of what kind of person you're talking to. And then all your other questions can just flow from there. And it's usually, uh, surprisingly, the spirit animal and, and that other question, I'd say knocks out half the people because some of them just turn white, can't answer, start stammering. There's just, it's just bizarre. It's just, you know, they, they're trained for every question under the sun, but they're not trained for what is your spirit animal. Those are excellent questions. I, I love both of them. Uh, one, out of interest, what is the most creative answer that you've ever heard uh, with regards to the spirit animal question? You know, it's like, I'm an eagle or a this or that. It, it doesn't really matter what they answer. It matters that they were able to answer. It's, it's, yeah, it's irrelevant what they say. It's just like, you know, did it take you 20 seconds? Were you staring off into space? Were you stuttering? Like so many people just stutter and just like, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. Can I get back to you? Or like, not even that, just like, so it's, it's, it's more their reaction than, than what they have to say. So one of the other things that is, I think, super impressive about Plant Fish is you built the company to that $800 million acquisition without ever raising external capital. So venture capital, uh, private uh, equity, how were you able to grow a company to that size uh, without raising capital? And what advice do you have for entrepreneurs on how to successfully bootstrap their businesses? Well, you're looking for continual improvement, right? So, you know, a 1% gain or a 2% gain a week compounding or 10% gain at the early stages adds up into something gigantic. So at your earliest stages, you focus on data and you, so one of the very first things I did, you know, even in the first week of, of the company was I recorded nightly how many visitors I had that day, uh, how many messages they sent, how many distinct senders and receivers of messages. And then I found out that distinct senders and receivers of messages was the absolute core metric in which to grow the business. So if you increase those numbers, the more people will come back to the site, it will get more viral and will just grow. So then I focused the entire product around how can I get more visitors? And so when I would develop features or functionality, everything would be around like, how can I get more messaging out of this? And then I think when we sold, we're over a billion messages a month uh, that were being sent through the platform. So if you focus on, on like, here's the core drivers of growth and you focus on those, and then you also focus on, well, how can I make revenue from these people? And then you're looking at ways that you can incrementally improve revenue over time. But, but if you're getting tremendous amounts of growth and you're able to pay your bills because, you know, for it was just one employee myself. So it didn't really matter. It was just hugely profitable. And it was just how much money do I want to used to experiment and try and drive this even bigger. And when it comes to marketplace businesses, which online dating is, it's a two-sided marketplace, you know, those things are like 10-year overnight success stories for the most part. It's, it just takes forever, you know, four or five years in until you see massive viral adoption and just huge exponential growth. Uh, because before then, it's just slowly building and compounding. And then once you're at scale, it really blows up. So for marketplace businesses, you typically, you should keep costs really low, nail your product market fit, then keep iteratively uh, uh, improving the product and split testing is absolutely key. So every time you roll out a new feature, 
you check to see, okay, this has a 2% difference to revenue or a 2% difference to signups or retention rates, whatever it may be. Uh, you have to measure everything. Otherwise, it's like throwing a bunch of darts against the wall. Half of them miss, half of them hit, and it's a wash at the end of the day. So the companies who made it in, in those early days, and today it's a must. I mean, you're dead in the water if you don't split test, you don't use data for decisions. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it's being data-driven, not report-driven, because the vast majority of companies are actually what I would call report-driven. Uh, they're like, we need to do analytics. So next, they will get a guy to go write 200 reports. And about at the 200 mark, most companies will realize this doesn't work at all. So now we're going to go and try and be more data-driven, where you have like some guys, you have business analysts, you'll have people who do exploratory analysis, where it's like, I have a question, can I get an answer from this in the next two hours of what I need to do here? And then you're looking at trends and putting alerts on them and seeing, you know, like, hey, for some reason, it, it, if, if it was dating, it's like, hey, in Brazil, our, our Brazil numbers just shot up by 20% in the last six weeks and we have no idea why. Let's dig in and see what changes we made and try and track it back to a moment in time or a push on a certain date that made those numbers shoot up. Or inversely, this is what happened all the time. It's like, we have a half a percent decline in messaging. We don't know why, but we can trace it back to this hour and this minute. And then there's push went live and there was these 20 items in that push to production. And let's try and identify, you know, which page it was on. So sometimes it's like, well, uh, it was all messages initiated from this section of the website. So therefore we know the errors on here. Uh, to give you an example, it's the dumbest, there's some of these dumbest things would just blow up and no one would ever think of it. Uh, some of it was um, on iPad, it was uh, the HTML, there was some weird error in the HTML where it suddenly decided we were gonna validate every credit card number as a phone number on an iPad running these browser versions. So there was, we would have perpetual issues with browsers and them doing things we completely didn't expect or understand and would blow up our page. And then, you know, you're losing a half a percent here, you're losing a half a percent over there and a couple percent, you know, and all these things really add up and are a drag on your growth. One of the things uh, that you created a tremendous amount of impact through Plenty of Fish is, is you are probably directly responsible for connecting uh, millions of people for probably getting married in, in long-term uh, relationships uh, around the world, maybe tens of millions uh, or hundreds of millions. Uh, this is a somewhat broad question, but what, what does it feel like to have that kind of like responsibility where your product has made such an impact on so many different people's lives? It, it, it was tremendously rewarding. And it was also you know bizarre when I would you know talk to someone that they just came from Brazil and it's like, oh my God, your site is so huge there. My, my cousins, my mother, they met, they met, or, you know, going to restaurants. And if the waitresses were ever found out that, uh, uh, you know, you create a POF, they would just, they'd be like, oh my God, my friend met someone here. This in, in Canada and the United States, there's always a friend of a friend or, or someone in the immediate family or extended family that has met or married someone off the site. I, I can only imagine. And yeah, I'm sure for the rest of your life, you will get a lot of uh, comments uh, from different people who I'm sure you, you transform their lives in, in different ways. So as mentioned before, you successfully sold the company to Match.com in, in 2015. Can you tell us a little bit about what that acquisition process was like and what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are 
looking to sell their companies uh, to uh, a larger uh, corporation? Well, you know, they, they basically after the first, and they called me yearly asking if I was going to sell. And I was just like, okay, let's get this done. The entire thing was negotiated in basically a month. Um, and it, but, you know, before I even started the site, like I had a choice back in 2008, I was sitting at home, I had no employees, nothing. I was like, I, and, and if, you know, I was thinking of starting an office, and, and they sent a, 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 there was an acquisition offer for a few hundred million, basically just me, myself. And I was like, well, maybe I should actually do something with my life and, and go and, and hire a bunch of people, figure out how to manage people. Because otherwise, I'm just going to get a whole bunch of money and I have no idea what to do with it. So then I built out the company. And then at a certain point, I was like, Match was just taking over everything. They own everything in the space. I was like, yeah, this isn't going to turn out too well in the long term. And I was like, All right, maybe it's time to sell now and do something else. Because fundamentally, when, when you're like a dating site has the messaging screen, the profile screen, and the search page, and all you're doing, especially after 10 plus years of doing this, is you're just optimizing those three screens to increase monetization, to increase virality, and to increase the, the, the users, right? So at, at some point, you're just like, enough is enough. I, I can do something else now. So after the successful acquisition of Plenty of Fish, you founded at Friend Properties, which is a family office that holds a billion dollar portfolio in real estate, public markets, venture capital, private equity, and alternative investments. And so you own across, across a really wide variety of asset classes. What does your due diligence process look like when you're uh, considering investments? And in general, I know you invest in many different kinds of sectors, but what sectors excite you the most uh, currently? Well, so... so when, when you create a family office and you're looking at uh, in investing, you really have to find something that you actually want to do or somewhat passionate about. Because a lot of these things like real estate, um, real estate has the same returns as venture capital for the most part. So you're looking at 20, 15 to 20% uh, increase in, in uh, uh, your value every year. And there's a ton of real estate. It's relatively low risk. And you're just looking for teams who have been doing it for five, six plus years uh, or, or four or five funds under their belt. Cause there's a lot of first time funds, but there's not a lot of second time funds. So, you know, it's like the same 90% of venture capital firms lose money. Like they, they never make money. And then the remaining 10% make everything and they make the average. So nine out of 10, you never want to see or work with. So, so you're always, always trying to go after the more mature ones. And then in terms, so that's a, a, a chunk of it. Then you got public markets. And then there's things I do directly, which is like invest in Cymax, invest in Arvezi, and there, there's a bunch of others. Um, and those are things where I can use my knowledge or skill set that's directly applicable. So for Arvezi, it's an Airbnb for RVs. But as you can imagine, pandemic, everything's blown up. So we did this deal a few months before the pandemic. Um, and, and that's a, 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 this is someplace where it's a two-sided marketplace. So I can go in there and say, here's all the learnings I did at Plenty of Fish. Here's all the split tests we ran around monetization, around user engagement. And we can just cut and paste this in here. Uh, so those are the types of investments I like to do where it's just really easy for me to just cut and paste my knowledge into it and uh, remove all the uncertainty and the risk and move them years ahead of where they normally be. Or Because most, most companies take a ton of time to figure out fail and, until they find the right way of doing it. But if I can come in and say, hey, do it this way because it works. Uh, it saves a ton of time. 
I can imagine. Uh, yeah, it's a fascinating business, a, a very demanding one that requires a, a lot of uh, precision and, and also an ancient uh, craft. So kind of a fascinating business uh, to launch. You've mentioned uh, you, that you have young kids. Out of interest, how has becoming a parent and, and having kids uh, changed uh, your perspective on, on life or, or entrepreneurship? Well, it's really about, you know, a, a, a slowing down and going, it also goes back to my childhood where if you're around nature more or you're around, you know, bigger property, a farm, whatever, it just slow, time slows down. Um, you know, if you look back five years ago or six years ago, you know, or before you have kids, you can maybe summarize the whole year in like three or four sentences, right? Like I did this, you don't really know what happened. You're just, it's all kind of a blur. And when you have kids, there's more, there's a lot more milestones and they come quicker. So that also makes time slow down. But in general, it's like, do you really want to be working day in and day out, running to an office, doing all these things? A lot of it is just uh, a routine and repetition and pattern. You don't really even need to be there. I, a lot of people have found that in the pandemic is that being in more uh, rural lo or locations or closer to nature has a huge positive impact on mental health. It really does slow time uh, down. And I've also heard similar comments uh, with regards to, to parenthood. If you could go back in time and speak with your 22-year-old self, what advice would you give and why? I'd say keep doing what you're doing. It turned out just fine. I mean, look, there's a million and things you can do, but you, you know, when, when you sell a company that is highly successful and then you go in and help a bunch of other people, the most common mistake that many people make is assuming that everyone else is just like them, but they're not. And when, when you look at early founders and then you look at ones that are highly successful, the ones that are highly successful, it's all grit, perseverance, determination, and it's getting through all the hard stuff where you learn and you understand the consequences of action. So if I go this route or I go this route, I know kind of what I'm going to get. When you're that early, you don't really know. And you have to build that experience. And there is no shortcut to the experience. You just have to go through it. And you always have to pick the hard things because the easy things someone else will have done, you know, and when you're CEO or when you're, when you're founder of something and you've, you've got a ton of employees, the only stuff that comes to you is stuff that no one else can solve. And the more employees you get, you know, the more stuff comes to you, but it's also more harder and harder stuff for which there is no answer. And the only way you're going to be able to make decisions and to be confident and it's if you have that experience and that background that comes from failing over and over, like, and, and if you're in a tech company and it's, and you're not mature, or let's say you're a very mature company uh, that is highly successful, then nine things out of 10 you you're doing should be failing. And it's only one thing should be working really well. It's because all the easy low hanging fruit has gone. And there's absolutely no way to get to the next level without failing more. I completely agree. And I think it's that, that constant failure and going through hardship that builds that grit over time, which to your point is so important in, in life. And, and certainly many studies show that, uh, that, that uh, being gritty and having that resilience is, is super important and particularly important for, for entrepreneurs. So the really good advice, Marcus, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Really fascinating interview from your uh, experience at growing up or being born in Germany and then uh, growing up in a very rural location in British Columbia, uh, really kind of almost off the grid uh, for, for many years uh, to founding the largest dating website in the world and selling it for close to a billion dollars and now running a very successful family office. 
uh, and uh, teaching yourself winemaking and a wide variety of other sectors. You really are an incredibly fascinating person and I think a great person for young Canadians uh, to learn from. Really appreciate you coming on the show today, Marcus. Great. Well, thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A New Wave of Entrepreneurship is produced by Winita Lee Garcia and Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormanston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.